Hello everybody and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Thank you very much indeed for joining us here today. This episode is all about Wilkie Collins' 1868 publication, The Moonstone, which many hold, T.S. Eliot among them, as the start of the English detective tradition. Now, earlier in the season, you may remember, we looked through the Dupin stories by Edgar Allan Poe, which others believe are the beginning of the detective story in the English-American tradition. And today, we're really excited to be taking you through this big tome of a mystery. So thanks very much for joining us. My name is Scott Powell, and as always, I am joined by my reader-in-arms, my brother across the pond, my cousin extraordinaire, the Septimus Luker to my Godfrey Ablewhite. I prefer to be Luker in that uh, dynamic, so that's great. You can be okay. Ablewhite okay. and uh, enjoy your fate. <laughs> um, <laughs> interesting, you mentioned about you know the American versus British thing regarding you know who has claims on the origin of the mystery novel. Mm-hmm. That's some sorts mm-hmm. of like long going battle, like in literary dogma, whether or not is it the Americans who hold the originator of the mystery novel because of Poe, or is it uh, the Mm. British because of Collins or, for certain, Sherlock Holmes? So are we to distinguish between an American mystery novel tradition versus a British mystery novel tradition? I think it's a big big question. I I think they're conflated. They're they're conflated. Mm. I think they're on the same trajectory. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're very close together in history as well. I mean, 20 yes. years between them, obviously, but um, w- one of them is decidedly a novel. The other is decidedly a short story, which perhaps was never intended to be a detective story. So it's, it's really interesting. Were either of these gentlemen aware of what they were doing? Were they kind of um, consciously trying to construct a new genre or were they just doing their own thing and something came out of it? You know, and that, so that's always a yes. question. Going into the Moonstone, I knew that he was a contemporary, uh, really a friend of Charles Dickens. And I read Mm -hmm. Dickens myself, so I was very familiar with the style going in. And I can see Mm -hmm. familiarities in terms of the writing a little bit in the way that the paid by the word thing, which I will comment upon a couple of times, but there's a Dickensian sense of scope and characters in the story. I find that the the characterizations of people and the linearity of the story, I find mm-hmm. that um, in a way Dickens wrote mystery novels because like even like think of like Great Expectations or Bleak House. Mm-hmm. In the end, yeah, like the redemption of the yeah. characters, the vindication mm-hmm. of the characters comes to resolving a mystery from the past. So there is mm-hmm. definitely a connection there, but there's also a little bit of yeah. a distance from that as well. Perhaps a little bit. Perhaps that lies more into the style in which it was written. Oh, I could That's be, my two yeah. cents anyway. My two shillings. Well, your two shillings. Well, we're going to get into all of that, of course, throughout today's episode. Um, thank you very much for, for joining us, everybody. We hope, uh, we hope you've enjoyed some good reading of your own over the last month or so. What have you been reading lately? Well, I've been reading um, some kind of updated Stoic philosophy as uh, written by Ryan Holiday. And Ryan Holiday is a writer who's... Um, He's done a lot of work kind of with business and uh, sports and stuff, talking about, you know, the ego and kind of how it, 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 ruins, it ruins one's uh, goal setting, you know, and does, does a lot of that. And he's, he's a big advocate of Marcus Aurelius, a big advocate of Epictetus, and I've just kind of been getting back into mm, the Stoic philosophy. Connection. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm just okay. kind of getting into that. I yeah, I read I read his book, The Ego is the Enemy. That's the one I'm reading right now, or Ego is the Enemy, and I'm quite enjoying it. I've also been reading um, the autobiography of Rick Pitino, who's a college basketball coach. You may remember the headlines, Josh, back a few years ago. Pitino and the University of Louisville were embroiled in some scandals and uh, um, scandals concerning the way that uh, high school players were being recruited and things like that into the oh, NCAA. It's just interesting because uh, his style of basketball is one that I, I like. As you know, I'm a basketball coach over here, so I have a lot of time. So I try to read some nonfiction like that in between our uh, our great mysteries. What have you been yeah. doing, buddy? What have you been reading? Well, be- besides the Moonstone, I have been, I think just in the past couple of months, I've been catching up on old movies that I've never, or classic movies that I haven't seen mm. before. Yeah, you have. We talked been. about that. And now I've been sort of on a noir binge and seeing some of like the classic noirs, you know, like I saw Laura by your recommendation, mm-hmm. uh, which I really, really liked. And then I've, I've seen, you know... Uh, some other lesser-known noirs that are, are just as good as some of the others. Um, one that I saw really I saw recently was Detour by Edgar Ulmer. And a lot mm-hmm. of people don't know about Edgar Ulmer because Detour itself was a film that was made on Poverty Row. And Poverty mm-hmm. Row was basically the lowest levels of the Hollywood studio system at the time. Mm-hmm. But guys like Ulmer cranked these movies out like on the lowest budget. This movie was shot in 14 days. And that was shot and produced in 14 days under Ulmer's supervision. And he actually made what I think is like, and what many people, and I totally agree with them, a kind of a surrealist noir masterpiece. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's just amazing how you can crank quality out of of so little. And Ulmer himself is a fascinating individual. There's a documentary that came with the Criterion Blu-ray that I got of Detour. And it talked about how Ulmer was the set worker for Murnau on like Nosferatu. He worked on the cabin of Dr. Caligari, this like this uh, Czech-born oh, cool. uh, young German filmmaker at the early days of like German expressionism in the twenties. He got involved with. He eventually made his way up to like a lot of these guys do to Hollywood in the thirties. He, he worked for Lemiel at Universal. He directed uh, this Universal film. It's very considered a cult classic. It's a film starring uh, both Karloff and Bela Lugosi, and it's called The Black Cat. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of yeah. symbolism. Based on a Edgar Allan Poe story. Yes. There's a lot of symbolism, too, between like the rise of the Third Reich in, in, in Germany mm-hmm. and whatnot, and Ulmer escaping that. He cool. tried to get himself into the early noir period in the 40s, uh, and melt, uh, but he failed and to get the, you know his, his footing. And then he ended up, you know, he had to make money on Poverty Row. And this is where he did some some of his some of his greatest pictures, including Detour. And Detour itself, if anyone wants to see it, it's a very simple story. Guy wants to go back to wants to get to Hollywood from New York to meet up with his with his the girl he wants to become his fiance in order to but because she's there to, she wants a Hollywood career. He's just a poor piano player in in CD bars, and he makes he hitchhikes his way across America, and then he ends up picking mm-hmm. up getting picked up by uh, someone who is sort of a con artist in, in itself. This person ends up dying, not through his fault, but then in, in, his, in his paranoia, he tries to, to, to lose the body and then he impersonates this person. But then he picks up the oh. man's estranged wife, this Vera, played by uh, brilliantly by this actress, Anne Savage. And uh, anyways, just to make a long story short, her last name, the actress's last name, uh, fits her character to the T. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it's quite something else. Um, um, I will point out that uh, later on, 
I will be doing some noir reviews for Lighting the Pipes. I'll take this on my own, yeah. as we discussed. I'm looking so I'll be forward to that. These up. I'm looking forward to it. What are your first couple going to be, Josh, of these little reviews that we've been kind of teasing our audience? I think I will include Detour on the first review, but I'm also going to be looking at um, Murder My Sweet, which is, of course, an adaptation of Farewell My Lovely Farewell, my by lovely, Raymond Chandler. Right. And what about and Chandler's I'll, own script for The Blue Dahlia? And then The Blue Dahlia, yes. I managed to find uh, a Blu-ray copy of The Blue Dahlia. Nice one. Of The Blue awesome. Dahlia starring um, Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. So I checked that movie out and uh, I found that really interesting. And it's cool to see Chandlerian pacing and dialogue in the Mm -hmm. film. Because, you know, like even with The Big Sleep, uh, a lot of the Chandlerian dialogue is kind of somewhat offset by more Hollywood-friendly dialogue, like by Lee Brackett and and, um, and Howard Hawks, for Mm -hmm. example. So it's really interesting to see, you know, it's almost like you're, you're reading a chapter of a Chandler book on screen. And it, and it also kind of has the pacing of a Chandler book, which is, is amusing because they work so well on the page in Chandler, you know, to to an extent. <laughs> but on film, That's it's right, a different yeah. beast on altogether. Film, so, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you realize so, when there's characters and actors speaking them, just how outlandish some of that dialogue really is, you know? Oh, yeah, 100%. But yeah, there'll be more of those yeah, down the line yeah. in the future, and I hope our listeners will enjoy those for, for what they are. Yeah, Noir is absolutely. a really uh, interesting world. But yeah. I think those film reviews are going to be great additions to what we're doing here on Lighting the Pipes. Uh, and it's really in your wheelhouse, because you've been doing little reviews like this for such a long time, but you haven't really put them uh, out there. So I think as fillers yeah. between our bigger reads, this is going to give our listeners uh, not just information on film, but also some quality reviews and recommendations, and also maybe some literary links and suggestions in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, buddy. Well, today's job, of course, is all about Wilkie Collins, all about the Moonstone. Now, Josh, this book is a book that we both knew uh, a few things about. Obviously, we knew its existence and its important kind of uh, re- its reputation within the genre. But it the wasn't until Christmas. Yeah, but it wasn't until Christmas of this year that I actually had a copy because you gifted me one with uh, not not much of a message, but just simply the suggestion that this was going to find its way onto our reading list. What was the motivation for you in putting this on this season's reading list? Well, again, I heard of his reputation. Uh, when, you, when you read anything about Sherlock Holmes, about the detective genre, they always talk about the Moonstone. So I was always curious. I had seen people in forums discuss it, um, you know, just vague bits of it. And it definitely intrigued my curiosity. And I figured, you know, since we did Edgar Allan Poe and we did Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes and we're kind of, you know, going to the origins of the mystery novel. And even though we're jumping around uh, in terms of, you know, time periods, I thought that this was, you know, a good instinct. Uh, and I wasn't sure if you had the book or not. And I just thought that uh, it would be something that that we could do and saved you a couple of dollars from ordering it. And I got you a nice copy too. So there yeah, you we, go. Got, we got a great one. Um, not that we have the exact is, uh, same uh, Oxford World Classics. Yeah, the Oxford World Classics is the one we're looking at printed in uh, North America, right? This would be the New York publication, I guess. Uh, and the, that's the right. Page numbering and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a nice one for sure. So uh, I, I thank you for that gift, sir, and I thank you for the opportunity to read and talk about it here on the show. So, uh, yeah, should be should be fun. Should be a good episode yeah, for it, everybody. I think so, too. I think so far it's pretty good. But 
it's it's a seminal novel. If you're into the mystery genre, I think it's a seminal novel to have in your collection. And I think you should read it at least once because mm-hmm. you really see like the primordial ooze of the genre in this book. Yeah, there's a lot of ooze. There is a lot of ooze. Yeah. <laughs> and after we get through some um, after we get through some fast facts and a plot summary, which will show some of that ooze, we'll uh, light our pipes and talk about ranking it all. Indeed we will. Have you got anything else to say before we uh, before we transition? Just as a disclaimer, I may have mentioned Wilkie Collins among uh, a list of influential female uh, mystery novelists, and I just want to remove that from the uh, record. Ledger. (laughs) From the ledger, yeah, so to speak, uh, because that is definitely not the case. Um, Wilkie Collins was very much a man, and we'll get into him and find out what he's all about. I kind of made sure that I would not go into the Moonstone with any context of Wilkie Collins beyond what I knew. Uh, I even kind of stayed away from the annotations as well, uh, just so that I can kind of absorb myself in that world and figure it out myself. And so I don't know much about Wilkie Collins besides what we discussed previously. So I'm looking forward to hearing uh, who he was and Mm -hmm. what he was all about and what he was thinking and what was lying deep in his soul, Mm. as I'm sure the the Wikipedia (laughs) articles and other scant uh, information has told you. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, why don't we get on to that, everybody? Thanks again for joining us here on this episode dedicated to the Moonstone. We will do some fast facts on the author and the publication, and then we'll get into Josh's plot summary before we break down the pipes and light them with you. So thanks again, and here we go. Here we go. All right, so Wilkie Collins was born William Collins in 1824 in London to a fairly affluent family. His dad was a very well-known landscape painter, William. Uh, His mum was Harriet Geddes. And though he was named William, Wilkie comes from his godfather, Sir David Wilkie. Uh, He was soon called by and known uh, known by his middle name. His schooling, Josh, began at uh, Maida Hill Academy in a locality, Maida Hill, which today is more widely referred to as Maida Vale in London. He wasn't there long, though, as he moved to the continent with his parents in 1836. He lived in Italy and France for three years, and during this time he learned to speak Italian, he started learning French, and would later become influent, or later become fluent in both of those languages. Mm-hmm. Already we're thinking, hmm, a little connection to Franklin Blake, maybe, in the story. Yeah. From 1838 to 1840, Collins attended Reverend Cole's boarding school in Highbury, which is a district in North London. He claimed that this is where he really started his storytelling, in an attempt to appease his dorm bullies. Now, apparently, he'd attracted attention for his knowledge of languages from some of the less educated boys, and they gave him a hard time. One boy in particular, who Collins referred to as a brute, apparently forced him to tell him a story every night before bed. Now, on the one hand, <laughs> this is sort of funny, as school bullies definitely don't go in for being placated by narratives these days, I can tell you. But on the other on the other hand, it's also kind of sad, isn't it? And suggestive of how neglected some kids were by their parents, or more accurately, how little comfort came into parenting the young in Victorian times. Even into like Edwardian like and Georgian yeah. times, or e- even further, um, I don't know how much is based in history, but I remember watching The Crown mm. and what... Uh, 
Prince Charles went through in the board when he was a boy in boarding school, and he did not like it at all. Mm-hmm. And neither did, mm-hmm. did 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 Philip. Now, how how true that representation was, I don't know, but you can kind of see that yeah, it was yeah. definitely a it's like a finishing school where they've been through yeah. mm-hmm. uh, so many rigors of discipline of proprietary mm-hmm. propriety. Uh, deportment as a character from Great Expectations would always say, sorry, from uh, Bleak House would always say, I'm to remember the name of the character. He was very, he was very eccentric as most Dickens characters are. But anyways, you get the idea small that weed. it's, no, not small weed. No, it's the guy who ran, who ran the dance school and. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 They, I don't know if you, I don't if you, if you haven't read the mother. book, but he's definitely in the BBC mm-hmm. uh, miniseries, you know, oh, the one is, with Gillian yeah. Anderson and Charles Dance. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I digress, but it does sound to me a little bit like this bully missed out on feeling loved and secure. But, you know, at the same time, there is a precedent for um, you know, people who become comedians, they often talk about needing to act up for other people, you know, to kind of keep themselves feel safe, like comedy would be a guise behind which they would hide. And maybe this storytelling thing really was that sort of thing for Collins. It kept him safe and it made him feel that way. Well, anyway, after leaving school in 1841, uh, Wilk, uh, he apprenticed with some tea merchants, Antrobus and Company. He didn't much enjoy the clerical work, but he stayed with it for nearly five years. And during his tenure there, he wrote and published his first stories. Yeah. In 1845, buddy, he published his first novel, Ailani, or Tahiti as it was, a romance, but it was rejected. Apparently, it was too outlandish and imaginary in its renderings of indigenous groups versus British sensibilities at the time. I suppose the, the Empire didn't really want to see proof of its exploitative adventures rendered with energy on the page, or at least the way Collins was doing it. That, that's yeah, my perception. Not. I, I've not read the book. I've not read the book, but... It was. I like how um, he calls it a romance because he did that to the moon yeah, as well. Yeah. But I mean, the term mm-hmm. romance, I think, has a different connotation back it then, probably, than does. it does now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it had a lot to do with sort of um, Orientalism, you know, to quote a term by Edward Said, and stories like Orinoco and sort of the, the noble savage and all of that type yes. of stuff. So who who knows what he was playing with? I haven't read it. Maybe some of our listeners have, and you could let us know. But uh, in, in in any case, buddy, it remained unpublished during uh, Wilkie's lifetime. Meanwhile, uh, back at home, his dad was getting upset that first, Wilkie had no intention of following him as a painter, and he grew even further disillusioned that he wouldn't enter the clergy. In 1846, Wilkie Collins became a law student. He completed his degree, but he never practiced the profession. But if you think about the Moonstone, you can see how that really did influence and strengthen his writing, you know, if you think about mm. Mr. Bruff. Mr. Yeah, Bruff, Lawyers yeah. show up throughout this work, and apparently throughout a lot of Collins's work. Understanding the legal died. system, police procedurals mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. It really helps. It helps become a good uh, a good writer in the genre for sure. Well, his father died in 1847, and Wilkie wrote a memoir based on his life. Shortly after his first novel, Antonia, a history, was published in 1850. Three contemporary novels followed. Collins met Charles Dickens, which you mentioned earlier, in 1851, and the two became good friends. Wilkie, who always enjoyed a bit of theatre and dabbled in it as well, he got involved with some of Dickens' productions. The two travelled to Europe together and would visit each other's homes frequently. George Eliot and Anthony Trollope were also big literary names among Collins' friends. Now, here's some trivia for you, buddy. Wilkie Collins was the first author to ever use a literary agent. Alexander Pollock Watt was his name. Collins helped to establish what would later become the Society of Authors, the organization which lives on today. 
Oh, I never heard cool. of the society. I never heard of the Society of Authors. No, I hadn't either. But I looked it up, and yeah, it's it's still going strong. Yeah, I think uh, twelve thousand British authors part of it, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a collection of agencies, it's, maybe yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, cross-referencing each other for conglomerate, certain, yeah, yeah, conglomerate based. Mm-hmm. Well, Colin suffered from poor health, particularly during the late 1850s and into the 1860s. He developed rheumatic gout, which greatly affected his vision. Now, he had already been wearing glasses since about the age of 21, at least in pictures, which indicate as much, but he required the assistance of a secretary very often during this time. His lifelong doctor, Frank Beard, eventually prescribed him opium in the form of, can you guess? Laudanum. Laudanum as a painkiller. Now, not surprisingly, he developed an addiction and a tolerance to this drug over the years. He claimed that he took enough daily that would, quote, suffice to kill a ship's crew, end quote. (laughs) This led him to delusions and hallucinations. Wilkie Collins never married. He didn't quite go in for that practice, but he was involved in two long-term relationships. Simultaneously, I might add. The first was with a woman named Caroline Graves, a widow with a young daughter that Collins treated as his own. They met in 1856 and lived together from 1858 until 1880s and Collins' death. In 1864, however, Collins met Martha Rudd. Now, at 40 years of age, he was more than double her. She was only 19. Double hers. She was only 19 at the time. But they had three children together. They assumed the identities of Mr. and Mrs. William Dawson. In 1868, Caroline Graves suddenly married another man. So I guess two can play at that game, Wilkie. But in the spring of 1871, she returned to live with Collins until his death. So however history cuts it up, buddy, Wilkie Collins maintained two families over the course of these overlapping decades. One can only imagine the conflict, passive and aggressive, that transpired throughout this time, eh? Absolutely. Well, Collins's most famous and successful works are The Woman in White and The Moonstone. They come eight years apart, and both are from the 1860s. The Moonstone, as we'll now get over to discussing in a few moments, is regarded by many as being the first English detective novel. It has never been out of print. Though he's best known for being a master of sensationalist writing, that is, fiction focused on plot and dramatic occurrences, itself the prototype of detective and suspense fiction, Collins was a prolific author, and later works were more serious, even drifting into the political. Late in his life, Collins was involved in a cab accident. He suffered a bronchitis attack, and he died in September of 1899 from further complications. During his lifetime, his work was overshadowed by his friend, Charles Dickens, but he made his way back out of obscurity in English literature. During his 65 years of life, Collins wrote 30 novels, 14 plays, and 60 short stories. It's a pretty impressive output for what today would be regarded as a life cut pretty short, eh? Definitely. Yeah. So that's just a little bit on uh, Wilkie Collins, and now just a few facts on the Moonstone. And what I'm going to share here, guys, are some starting points for listeners. If you want to go out and find more, you can find a lot more. Um, These are just nuggets of trivium, really. But there's lots of information and context out there on this book because it is so very popular and it has been around for such a long time. Okay, And I'm going to hold back also, Josh, if you're cool with it, on really saying too much about the significance of this book for crime and detective fiction because I don't want to step on the toes of our conversation that's just on the way here. Okay, Of course. So The Moonstone was published in 1868. As I've already said, the the middle of Collins' career as a writer. 
It's written in epistolary fashion, using fictional extracted pieces and papers. The narratives are all told from limited first-person point-of-view perspectives, with several alternating narrators. The novel also contains really generous footnotes and asides from the narrators to readers, which help really characterize the figures even further in the novel. The fictional frame is one of being a compilation of accounts by protagonist Franklin Blake. The novel possesses real serious character analysis and psychological discussions. In addition to being a detective novel, it also deals with social issues regarding the treatment of servants, social class relations, and gender dynamics. American modernist T.S. Eliot called The Moonstone the first, longest, and best modern English detective novel in a genre invented by Collins and not Poe. High praise. And big also words a from a big figure, figure, yeah. To, to uh, Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> po. he, he had yeah. many critics, apparently, and I guess T.S. Eliot was yeah. among them. <laughs> yeah, well, Edgar Allan Poe didn't write Cats, did he? No, he did not. Uh, but not enough, did Andrew really Lloyd Webber Eliot, did, but... <laughs> <laughs> Not really, true. but T.S. Eliot is really true. responsible for I whatever is, had... is up there now on stage or on film. I... <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Judy Dench prowling around the screen. Yeah. Yeah. And this whole like Taylor controversy Swift, yeah. about the, uh, I don't like being vulgar, but there is something called the butthole cut. It's like this <laughs> uh, controversial like fan idea that people have put it up, put it up there about how like they removed... <laughs> said uh, body orifice. part, yeah, orifice from the final cut of the picture, but there's actually a cut that includes said orifice. And let's just go with that. That uh, I don't think that was T.S. <laughs> Eliot's intention, but at the same time... Oh, I don't either, yeah. I think Poe owns uh, him on that one there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so Collins drew inspiration for his characters uh, from real life, including himself, uh, characters like Sergeant Cuff and Mr. Murthwaite, who we'll talk about shortly, could be regarded as proto-templates for the well-known Sherlock Holmes detective that Conan Doyle was going to create in just 20 years from this point. We'll say more about uh, Conan Doyle and Holmes at the end of our show, which I think will nicely stitch up to some of our other work in the past. But that that's it, okay? That, that's some fast facts on the Moonstone, fast facts on Wilkie Collins. And now, my good man, I'm shuffling over to you to give us a wee little plot summary. So, the Moonstone. It begins with the typical Victorian trope, the moral morass of colonial India. It then takes us back to England for some theft suicide, family tragedy, and finally, vindication. First, what is the moonstone? Well, it is an an actual moonstone per se. I'm referring to the semi-precious gem that actually exists. It's in fact a diamond associated with the shrine of Chandra, the Hindu god of the moon. Wilkie Collins, in a few words, a drop in the pond in terms of how many words he uses in this story, he was indeed (laughs) a friend of Dickens, Collins explains through our prologue narrator that Colonel John Herncastle, a violent Amaral fellow, pilfered the moonstone during the siege of Siringpatam after killing a whole bunch of people to the admonition of his fellow soldiers, among them our, our prologue narrator, his cousin. And then he is also shunned by the rest of his family and friends upon his return to England. 
Among those, among them is Lady Julia Verinder of Yorkshire Gentry, who we meet in the first narrative of Collins' opus. It is told by Gabriel Betteridge, the fanatically loyal butler of the Verinder households. Betteridge and those that follow have been instructed by a Mr. Franklin Blake, cousin to the Verinders, with the nudging of legal counsel, to relay his experience with the Moonstone. Betteridge, armed with his pipe and his Robinson Crusoe, did Daniel Defoe's family get royalties for this free advertising, <laughs> I wonder? Waxes on. He he, that's a moon joke. Miss Rachel, the headstrong daughter of Lady Verinder, is about to have her 18th cake day. But what is served instead is anything but sweet. A year before, Colonel Herncastle had shown up at the Verinder estate on the verge of death, but he was rebuffed by his sister, the dismissal given by Betteridge himself instead of Herncastle's own kin. That's cold. Herncastle soon dies and bequeaths the Moonstone to Rachel on her 18th birthday. A big dew is gathered at the Verinder estate. Betteridge and his daughter, Penelope, also a servant, are leading the staff everywhere as the people and complications start pouring in. Franklin Blake, first cousin to the Verinders, has returned from studying abroad and to resume his courtship of Miss Rachel. Then there's Rosanna Spearman, Lady Verinders' philanthropy case who was an orphaned thief in her youth, and after serving some time, was let out under Lady Vrinder's kind guidance to serve in her household. She is a quiet, mousy creature who keeps to herself and is not liked by the rest of the staff. She also has a crush on her mistress's nephew, one Franklin Blake. Awkward. She likes to wander off and go to the nearby cliffs of the Yorkshire coast and stare at the shivering sand, a not ominous at all sounding name for the quicksand formation at the base of the cliffs on the beach. Is there anything more tragic than unrequited love? Perhaps, but it is still pretty tragic. Meanwhile, Blake, conspiring with Betteridge, who is sort of a lower-class avuncular figure to the young man, heads into the nearby frizzing hall to collect the diamond, well aware that there has been three Indian men with a young, odd English boy hanging around the estate as some sort of busker act. I'm sure their presence has nothing to do with the Moonstone. <laughs> the soiree is had. Franklin arrives with the Moonstone, and it is bequeathed to Miss Rachel. Later, Verinder is shocked. Miss Rachel places it in, her, in the brooch on her dress. We then get the setup for the remainder of the novel, the list of suspects conveyed to us in melodramatic fashion. Franklin Blake is in a good esteem and seems to be on the precipice of popping the question to Miss Rachel, but another cousin, Godfrey Ablewhite, Frizen Hall and London's philanthropic champion, is fighting for the young lady's suit as well, but he is soon rejected. Betteridge learns this by way of his spy, Penelope. Ablewhite has to deal with his rejection in front of his family, who are also present, as well as Drusilla Clack, who we will unfortunately have to hear from later, also of her inner cousin. <laughs> and then there's the family physician, one Dr. Candy. Candy is a bit of a hard ticket who can't hear very well and has zero filter. Then there's Mirthwaite, filling in the Victorian adventurer trope and serving as an expository device so Betteridge, Blake, and we, the reader, are reminded about the three Hindu men. The latter invited to perform for the guests at one point. A damper is soon placed on the party when Blake disparages the medical profession in front of Dr. Candy in the typical mm -hmm. arrogant way that young men do. The older Candy barks back and they are trading barbs until Lady Verinder intervenes. The party begins to dissipate, the dinner done and the cigars and digestives consumed. Betteridge notices Dr. Candy speaking quietly to Blake's defeated suitor, Godfrey Ablewhite, about something or other. At this point, you wonder again how either Collins is being paid by the word or that he wants to convey how tedious dear Betteridge can be recalling these things for the sake of the story. <laughs> it's little details like the Candy Ablewhite meeting that we capture on the reread and rewatch or rewatch of a proper mystery text. 
As for the Moonstone, it is kept in a cabinet in Rachel's bedroom. The threshold of her bedroom has been freshly painted, a cute project undertaken by Rachel and Franklin Blake the past little while. But despite this seemingly unimportant detail, the Moonstone is pilfered. Who did it? Miss Rachel is really quiet about it and has done a complete 180 on Franklin Blake. Seagrave, a local copper, has been brought in from Frizinghall, courtesy of Blake, who is then coldly dismissed by Rachel. Seagrave is a cock-up. The entire staff is interrogated and confined to their rooms. Rosanna Spearman is said to have been duly secretive, burning something in her room in the middle of the night and yearning for the distraught Franklin Blake. And of course, Seagrave locks up the three Indians. A London officer specializing in these kind of cases is brought in, one Sergeant Cuff. Cuff, with a penchant for roses, begins to put together a list of suspects, including Miss Rachel herself. Now mm-hmm. Cuff admits arguing with the gardener about roses, notices that the paint on Miss Rachel's lintel at the threshold of her bedroom has been smeared by what appears to be the tails of someone's nightgown. This all leads them towards poor Rosanna Spearman, who throws herself in the shivering sands, supposedly because she is guilty, or somehow involved. Miss Rachel then takes to Frizzing Hall to stay with other family. Lady Verinder follows her, aimed to interrogate her daughter under protest, mind you, after being suggested to do so by Cuff. Lady Verinder writes back to Franklin Blake and indicates that her daughter will not speak of the diamond and in so few words she does not want to see Franklin Blake again. Already the misfortune the Moonstone has brought to Herncastle has now spread to the rest of the family. Before leaving, Cuff explains to Betteridge of his findings that Rosanna Spearman acquired a steel box and borrowed some dog chains... WTF, and took said box with her to the bottom of the shivering sands. Only a letter remained to the poor girl, a letter in the hands of her only friend, Lucy Yolland, a poor crippled local girl who will only give the letter to Franklin Blake if he comes calling for her. But Blake is gone, despondent and defeated. Cuff believes that the contents of that box contains a nightgown that had been smeared with paint from Miss Rachel's bedroom lintel. It is an inside job, Cuff is certain. Here, Betteridge's narrative comes to an end, and despite the long-windedness of it, of, of it, one quickly yearns for such attention to detail and proselytizing of Robinson Crusoe over the constant heavily, heavenly solicitations of another Verinder cousin, Drusilla Clack. It makes me long for another Drusilla, particularly of the vampire variety, who I believe was sired around this time, but this digression is more interesting, at least from the get-go, to what follows. TLDR, Drusilla Clack, is a puritanical nut, but deep down in desires to be loved by her family, but she loves too much, or at least love Jesus too much. When Mr. Bruff, the edifice of an old lawyer, asks her to continue her part of the narrative, what we get is essentially what everyone was up to post-Moonstone pilfering. But it's the raw connective tissue to the remaining narratives that will solve the mystery. So we have to endure. By this point, Lady Verinder and Rachel have moved to a townhouse in London. Clack is visiting them, Keon converting the entire household to God and to make pants for Godfrey Ablewhite's charity group. Clack is annoying, but her fire and brimstone act in disapproval of various peoples begins to grow on you for how funny it is. We learn from Clack, who looks upon Ablewhite as the prodigal son, returned that Ablewhite was accosted and tied up by assailants, the three Indians perhaps, as well as Septimus Luker, the London baker slash fence whom Mr. Bruff believes may have possession of the moonstone. Both men survive this ordeal. Clack's focus on Abel White starts off shining and then begins to fade as she, as she disapproves his devotion to Miss Verinder, who, according to Clack, is too headstrong for her own good. Clack is tolerated, and her resolve to convert her kin increases tenfold when she learns Lady Verinder is soon to expire. Keen to foster her aunt's devotion, she deposits various religious tracts throughout the London townhouse, but is foiled by Lady Verinder's physician. Meanwhile, Abel White, with Franklin Blank out of the picture, courts Miss Rachel and begins to lower in Clack's estimation. Rachel agrees to marry him, but suddenly the engagement is broken off, a mutual agreement between two young peoples. Clack regales us, not really, 
I don't think she can regale anybody no. with Ablewhite Sr.'s apoplexy at this discord. And we get a hint of what Ablewhite is dealing with personally. Quite a lot, apparently. Sadly, the later Verinder passes and Clack joins daughter Rachel in her grief, a new soul for her to save despite her initial dislike. No matter that Drusilla Clack may hate you, she is still going to pray for your soul, god darn it. That doesn't matter to Rachel, though, who upon hearing that Clack tried to save her mother's soul, yes, letting her bereaved daughter know her mother is basically burning in hell, shockingly wants nothing to do with her. So the story passes to Mr. Matthew Bruff, solicitor. The gist of Bruff's view on things is that one of the Indians visited him and gleaned from him that the item held by Mr. Lewicker is the Moonstone and is soon to be released a certain time next year. Plot point, check. Despite Clack's promise of eternal hellfire, that isn't what provides the steam to get the plot locomotive churning its engine once Franklin Blake picks up his pen. Blake is determined to win back Rachel's love for him. Having been in the East, he returns to England. Rachel is now living with Miss Meridu, her aunt, and holds Lady Verinder's entire estate in her possession. He knows of Abel White's failed courtship, courtesy of Bruff, but she still will not speak to him. In Yorkshire, he reunites with Betteridge on the Verinder estate, now boarded up. Plain detective themselves, they head back down to Rosanna Spearman Road, where at its terminus is, cripple, is the crippled Yelland girl, Lucy, the fisherman's daughter. She parts with the letter Rosanna had written for him, and on it are a series of instructions, instructions that allow him to recover the steel box in the shivering sands. The box is open, and in it he finds his own nightgown smeared with paint and a letter from Rosanna, her final confession. He learns she was in love with him, that she did everything she could to protect him, for she believes that he stole the moonstone, the nightgown being proof of that. He is generally uh, shook by the letter and cannot even finish it. Betteridge reads of rest, and Blakeworth decides to write to Mr. Bruff with this new evidence. In London, the two conspired a force of tete-a-tete between him and Rachel. It is done, and to his utter horror, Blake learns that the reason for all of Rachel's coldness to him is because she saw him take the moonstone from the cabinet in her room. Her own misguided love for him is what kept him from being reported to the police. He is mm-hmm. awestruck, and Rachel is incredulous at his, de- at, the- at his denial. This quagmire keeps getting deeper and deeper for poor Franklin Blake, though not as permanent as it was for Rosanna. Amen. Desperate, he writes to Bruff, to Betteridge, even, to the now-retired Sergeant Cuff, currently in Ireland. He finds himself once again before Betteridge, the old butler, his only friend in this nightmare. On a walk outside the estate, salvation comes in the form of Ezra Jennings, the dark-skinned assistant to Dr. Candy. Following the Moonstone robbery, we learn Dr. Candy suffered a fever, and Jennings looked after his mentor during this time. Blake shares his situation with Ezra Jennings, and Jennings, desperate for distraction and a motivational purpose since his terminal affliction, decides to go over the details with him. Certain aspects trigger the sharp but dying mind, and Jennings reveals of the writings that Dr. Candy made during his convalescence. They reveal this. On the night of the Moonstone theft, Dr. Candy exacted what he saw as a righteous correction to the young whippersnapper Blake by giving him a Mm -hmm. dose of laudanum, opium, essentially, sometime during the party. Blake concurs as he has been troubled with sleep lately due to quitting his cigars and worrying about the Moonstone. Jennings posits that in his stupor, created by the laudanum or the opium that he was given, and his worry about Rachel and the diamond, that Blake walked into Rachel's room, opened the cabinet, and took the diamond. I mean, I did not see this coming. Did anyone? Mm. Jennings suggests an experiment to create the night of the theft as accurately as possible. On the anniversary of the day itself, and with the Verinder household meticulously made up the way it was, that night, the hypothesis is put to the test. Jennings writes to Rachel, and she immediately accepts this explanation and agrees to be there for its execution. 
Jennings puts Blake on a regimen, creating those sleepless nights from quitting his cigar smoking again, making sure the laudanum will have the same effect as the day of the theft. Mr. Bruff and Miss Meridue accompany Rachel to the Verinda estate, though Jennings ensures that Blake has no knowledge of it. Bruff is skeptical, Betteridge is not happy at all with this quack theory, but in the end, the trigger is pulled. The elements are put into place and the laudanum is applied. Sure enough, Blake rises from his bed in a drugged stupor and it's observed by all as he leaves his room and enters Rachel's bedroom, opens the cabinet, and takes the phone moonstone Jennings has placed. Unfortunately, Blake ends up on the sitting room couch and passes out, the hiding place of the moonstone never found. But somehow, somehow it got to London. Doesn't matter for Franklin and Rachel, though. He is redeemed in her eyes, and they are later engaged. As for the Moonstone, well, on the day the Moonstone was released from the bank, Bruff and Blake, with the help of a street urchin named Gooseberry, tracked down a bearded, dark-complected man seen in Luker's presence. This leads them to a tavern where the supposed carrier of the Moonstone took a room for the night, preparing to embark for destinations unknown the next day. With no answer at the door, they burst into the small turret of a room to find the bearded man dead, smothered by a pillow. The moonstone is gone. Slats in the roof reveal the aggressive as murderers. The bearded man, it turns out, was not bearded at all, nor his complexion dark. Beneath the fake beard and blackface was none other than philanthropic titan Godfrey Abelwhite. Cuff finally gets in touch with Blake and his supposition that Abelwhite having sour grapes with the victor of Miss Rachel's affections was in on the laudanum administering with Dr. Candy. And when he saw Blake rise from his stupor, he followed him to the threshold of Rachel's bedroom, where he saw Blake take the moonstone from the cabinet and still quite out of it, found Abelwhite in the hallway and gave him the stone to safely deposit it. Turns out Abelwhite, prior to the party, had embezzled a trust fund in his care with his father's bank and took the moonstone to save himself. He used it to place a loan with the bank so he could repay the trust fund and more. Its value kept him afloat financially, but upon release of the diamond, his plan was to take it to Amsterdam to have it cut. Alas, the three guardians appointed by Vishnu had other ideas. They suffocated him and returned to India via a long and arduous journey. Heroes of their caste, they gloriously restored the moonstone to Chandra's statue. Vibes of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, just think, I'm just hearing the, the famous theme by William Shankara, uh, the Shankara Sh- stones. Yeah, exactly. So the moral of the story, don't piss off your family doctor or embezzle <laughs> or throw yeah. your life away for someone who doesn't deserve slash love you. Uh, or tell your good aunt's ones. daughter that her mother is now burning in hell. <laughs> and if you're really in a jam, <laughs> there's right, always yeah. Robinson Crusoe. That's true. Good shout. Yeah, always Robinson Cruz. So, yeah, nice one. Nice work. Thank you. Nice one. Okay. So, with that, I think we should uh, shift on over, see what Robinson Crusoe thinks about lighting our pipes. <laughs> we'll be getting an answer. Okay. That's the question. Yeah. All right, Josh. Now, we don't probably need to do this, but we do it every friggin' episode. Let's do it again. What are our pipes all about? PIPES is an acronym. It's uh, P for principles, I for investigation, P for perpetrators, E for environs, and S for supporting cast. We rate these out of five, and uh, that kind of gives us a metric on how we're, we're reviewing these books, how we receive them. Critically, entertainingly, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, and aesthetically, that's what our talks are all about. So the aesthetic score comes from our feel and our chat. So we'll start, as we always do, with principles. Now, for my part, buddy, you know, each character is kind of the protagonist of his or her own little view. But would you agree that Franklin (laughs) Blake is the story's protagonist? Just, I mean, for the sake that we have to score one character or two characters, I mean, what, what do you think? Who are the principles here? I'm going Franklin Blake just because he's the one that motivates the narrative being put together. It's just a tough question. What do you think? How do you read the principles category? It is a tough question, Scott. I would argue that there's almost a triumph a triumvirate of principles in this story. Okay. Right. I, I refer to this to the super team of Betteridge, Cuff, and Franklin Blake. Okay. Right. All yeah. yeah. Three of these prints, you could even add Bruff to an extent, even though he's sort of like an assistant to the mm-hmm. investigation, and J- Jennings as well. Exactly, like that's that, the problem, right? Like Jennings yeah, is but also. Yeah, I, I think. Okay, so I think if you if you take these three, like in terms of detective detective characters, uh, Betteridge is has the detective fever, as we know, so he feels you know uh, he's stricken with the detective fever. So he feels like his own kind of investigator in terms of defending the family honor of helping out the family that he has served for so long. Uh, Cuff is uh, 100% uh, a detective figure. He is basically mm-hmm. Lestrade with Holmesian instincts. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, we, of course, we have Franklin Blake as the gentleman detective character, uh, that sort of trope. But in a way, he's also sort of almost like a Dickensian hero as well trying to bring himself up from nothing, you know, or being reduced to nothing and then up from, and then back to himself. Yeah. And redemption again, right. From like rags to riches, to rags to riches again, sort of a Mm -hmm. thing, except of Mm -hmm. course, just the riches being the, in the estimation of his family and also his uh, beloved uh, Miss Rachel Verinder. Yeah. I think it would be rags to riches, villain to hero again, or villain to free man, if you will. Yeah, I mean, he was technically free, but in terms of, like, uh, it was in a mental prison and an emotional prison. And given his situation, when you learn something like that in real life, and it's just absolutely undisputable, and that can, that's something that could just totally crush you, you know what I mean? And you have no idea why you did it. And you're and you, I could just imagine the despair that he had trying to work his way out. And then, miraculously, this man, Jennings, this beautiful man, uh, saved him in, in the end more than anything, right? So... Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, in terms yeah. of scoring, for principles, I went, I went towards Franklin Blake, okay, as as the Fair. as as the character protagonist. But I accept fully what you're saying that these three men do work very closely together, and I would even argue that in terms of the depth of character, we probably know more about Betteridge than we do Franklin Blake. We probably get more of that. him than Franklin Blake. But in terms of the plot's uh, importance and sort of the you know, uh, the events and the incidences that that kind of affect the characters. I think Blake is the one, you know, that needs to reclaim and needs to move. And it's his arc that we're following more than the other characters that are alongside him riding sidecar. I, I feel that. I think my issue with Blake is why well, he seems like a nice guy, but he's also pretty arrogant. I do like that he has mm-hmm. flaws yeah. in that way. And, yeah. and you do see that on the page. And it's kind of his own sort of redemption in the end. But it's, I feel that I was just only given a sketch of who he was. Like, as again, I point to this Dickensian hero thing where mm-hmm. you feel the archetype more than the character. Whereas, like, people like Cuff and 
Betteridge to me stood out more as characters, and I I was I sympathized with them more. I was more concerned about what happened with the diamond, or what 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 actually happened more so than uh, more so than Blake's fate. Although I yeah, do I yeah. do I you can't deny when you get to that narrative with Blake and all the revelations that come with it that you do sort of sympathize with him as much oh, as kind sure, of angry yeah. I, I was with him at being kind of disgusted by Rosanna's uh, confession mm -hmm. uh, because I just found that his reaction to that, like, I don't know, maybe because he was to hear those things is quite shocking, but at the same mm -hmm. time, like I feel he just kind of like shoved her aside. And I personally, I don't know if I would be able to, I would have difficulty, I think, or at least struggling. I would struggle in the future knowing that someone killed themselves for me, you know what course, I mean. Like, yes, that yeah. is not yeah. a happy ending to me. Uh, but I mean, I no. guess you got to make the best of it in the what you have, I suppose. So I guess that's part of it. But she's just a low class creature who used to be a thief, right? She's not someone of perfect value, like uh, for example, of like you know of actual status and 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 social value as Franklin Blake mm -hmm. is. So uh, definitely, Collins is writing to that sort of audience. In, oh yeah, in, in that absolutely. Sense. Like. Like we yeah, can pity her, but at the same time, she's just a cog in the machine. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that the class milieu is very much alive here in the story. And I don't know whether Collins is trying to uh, kind of criticize it or call it up or draw attention to it. But I mean, he was he's firmly, firmly placed these characters within class conflict and bias. And, you know, Franklin Blake is a snob. The way he treats Rosanna is really quite poor. And it's tough to read that. Like, he gets upset and frustrated because of what's happened. He's only thinking about himself and, and about how this has affected his relationship with Rachel. Whereas what you're saying is spot on. There is legitimate pathos. And I, I find it hard to believe that there wouldn't also be pathos for Rosanna in contemporary readership as well, like the 1870s yes. reading this book, they must have felt for Rosanna because she is a reformed character. She didn't steal the nightgown because she wanted to, you know, cover things up. She wanted to protect the man she loved. And she hoped, as her letter said, she hoped that he would know that. And if there was time, he would come to her and figure it out. But she ultimately couldn't bring herself because of that class divide to, to voice her feelings, to talk to him. She came close, yeah. but she, she never did. So I'm wondering if Collins is himself very aware of the bias that his is. protagonist has. And if so, then maybe we can have a conversation, perhaps when we talk about the investigation more than here. We yes. can talk about the themes of the story, like appearance versus reality, social class, this type of stuff, you know? Absolutely. But um, I think because of the three like detectives, mm -hmm. as I mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, and other people who are kind of part of the investigation, principles was very hard to grade for me. And it kind of muddled my final scoring, too. Uh, mm -hmm. Overall, like Franklin Blake seems like, an, yeah, he's an arrogant young man. I don't think he's a bad person per se, but he's well, no, no, definitely a product so. of his class. You know, he's yes, a product, a product of, his class of his class and of his time. Yes, and the, the fact that he's more interested in repatriating that relationship with Rachel and not actually let's find out um, what happened to this poor woman. Let's find out what happened to this poor man. Like he, he believes he believes the prejudices that he sold by Betteridge. You know, he views 
Mr. Candy's assistant, Ezra Jennings, as this sort of kind of criminal, odd creature. And I, I feel like his weaknesses are very much there for us to read as well. So is he a complex character? I think so. But I would agree with what you said a few moments ago, that Franklin Blake is not as sketched out on the page as some of these supporting characters are. So if yes. if, if I do my bit, just act and talk from the perspective of this being Franklin Blake's story... In that case, I go 2.5 for the principal. I think he passes, he's necessary for the story, but he's thinly sketched and he's not as interesting as others around him. Uh, I find the balance between his good and bad believable, or his, I should say, his moral and immoral believable because of his class and his upbringing, but I'm not terribly fond of him. I don't find him terribly interesting as a Lothario, as an adventurer. He does do some active and very important agency-driven you know things in the story but nah, I'm, I'm not really going to remember much about franklin blake like if i was to put this book on the shelf for the next 10 years and someone asked me oh what's the moonstone about i'd say well there's this falsely accused guy who but then i'd be talking about all the other characters so franklin blake <laughs> two and a half i'm going two and a half because i recognize his necessity and the way he holds things together he is narrative glue character glue but um that that's where i would go however I would like to hear you, if you want to, to give me your principal score on the basis of Triumvirate or, indeed, from Franklin Blake, however you want to do it. I'm going for the Triumvirate, and Franklin okay. Blake kind cool. of su sullies that a little bit for me. Uh, and also, like, just the fact that there's a Triumvirate, so because everything is not spread out evenly. It's uh, tricky, Cuff, yeah. As I said, is you know he's 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 a working class police officer, but he has almost like the education of a master pathologist, uh, of a master sleuth. Uh, as I said, with, he has that Holmes feeling to him, and I think uh, he's a great character. Uh, it's very very. You can see Collins is a contemporary of Dickens too, because of all the eccentricities he gives some of his characters. But he doesn't mm -hmm. give them too much eccentricity, and that's what I like about Collins from what I've read compared to Dickens. Mm -hmm. Like the, he doesn't seem like he could almost become a caricature, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. And Cuff to me is you know with his you know with his interest in roses, uh, you can yeah. kind of see that he has, he's his own man. He has his own agency. He's there to help them out. He's a professional, but he's you can see that he wants to move on and get the case done and and talk about you know plants and whatnot yeah, yeah. uh going to ireland like it just feels that he's uh he's his own man and i think he stands out from the narrative as a much more interesting figure than franklin blake uh yeah. and of course the same with betteridge like well there are just moments before you move you on to betteridge just before you move on to betteridge i wonder josh um in support of your petition for cuff being more of a principal character this might be a good time for me to add a little bit of that extra information about where he came from and what Collins was perhaps drawing on as he wrote him. Yeah. If oh, you'll allow yeah, the interjection. Be... Yeah. yeah. Anything to assist uh, my theory. <laughs> yeah. I just think that this was interesting. Um, now, many believe that the character of Cuff was informed by um, this real life Scotland Yard detective inspector named Jonathan Jack Witcher. Uh, who rose to fame, uh, or I should say notoriety, for the Road Hill House murder. Now, this context I'm going to share with you, it's not a lot of information, but I'd like to, um, I'd like to give props to the History by the Yard website, which is an online resource specializing in the history of policing in London, okay? So I'll just share this bit of information with you about the character, okay. or be, about the real-life figure of Jack Witcher. 
Witcher was one of the original members of the detective branch which had been established at Scotland Yard in 1842. In 1860, he was called in to assist the investigation into the horrific murder of a child, Francis Saville Kent, who was just short of his fourth birthday. Now this, remember everybody, is just eight years before the Moonstone comes out. The child had been taken from the nursemaid's bedroom at night and was found with his, with his throat cut in an outside privy in the garden of his family's house the next morning. The murder brought notoriety to the small village of Road, Wiltshire. In the house lived Samuel Saville Kent, a factory inspector with an ambition for promotion, who had suffered from the effects of local gossip and disapproval, and had therefore moved house several times. His wife, Mary Ann, bore no fewer than ten children, between 29 and 45, one of whom, Constance Emily, was born in February of 1844. Now remember her name. Samuel Kent was rumoured to have started an affair with the resident governess, Miss Mary Drew Pratt, and after his wife suddenly died in May 1852, he married the governess in 53. She eventually bore him five other children, including, in 1856, Francis Savile Kent, the murder victim. So we're talking a big family, okay? Yes. When the nursemaid, Elizabeth Gow, reported the child missing at 7.15 in the morning to Mrs. Kent, a search commenced for him. But Mr. Kent personally drove off to Trow Bridge to inform Superintendent Foley rather than relying on local police to pass a message and seemed to have more knowledge about the details of the crime than he later admitted. A controversial inquest took place in which the coroner first restricted the witnesses to servants of, our, of the house, police officers and medical practitioners. It needed the jury to insist that the family itself be questioned. The coroner went to the house and even then questioned only Constance and her brother William. Mr. and Mrs. Kent were never formally examined. Witcher was called in to help, and started his inquiries by concentrating on a missing nightdress belonging to Constance. He established that Constance had had an opportunity to have withdrawn another of her night garments from the laundry basket as a ruse to blame the shortage of nightwear on the local woman who did the household's laundry. He reported his suspicions to the magistrate. There was also other circumstantial evidence. The magistrates directed Constance's arrest and gave Witcher seven days to prepare a case against her. Mr. Kent provided a barrister for his daughter, who dominated proceedings. Constance was released on bail. The case was later dropped. The reaction in the newspapers was sympathetic to Constance, and Witcher was heavily criticized. His reputation never recovered. The nightdress was never found, and Witcher returned to London. Subsequently, the local police conducted a prosecution against Elizabeth Gow, but that also failed. Now, this case is a classic illustration of how early investigations, and we see this in the Moonstone, were directed heavily by magistrates of the influence yes. which well-to-do people could exert over local police officers and of the importance of immediately searching and questioning the entire household at the scene of a crime, regardless of social status. Because Seagrave and, and Cuff, you know, bad heads about this. Anyway, here, here's, the, here's the end of it all. Later... Constance Kent admitted her crime after a conversation with the mother superior at the religious establishment at Brighton, where she lived, and went to Bow Street Court, where she made a confession of carrying out the crime. She pleaded guilty and was sentenced to death, but later was reprieved by Queen Victoria herself. By the time of her confession, Witcher had been retired from the police service because of ill health, and some of the newspapers, which were so critical of him at the time, published editorials vindicating his original judgment. So, really interestingly, I think this figure of Jack Witcher 
There's no way, because the story was so big, there's no way that Wilkie Collins wouldn't have known about it, wouldn't have been thinking about it. The detail of the nightdress, mm-hmm. this really logical, scientific, fact-driven Scotland Yard detective yes. inspector. Like, there's so much coming into this for me, hey? And, and I you just can thought, see that in the preface. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And because you're talking about Cuff as maybe being a principal, I thought that information might might help bolster that a wee bit, even though I didn't yeah, it hate absolutely, him as such. Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, he's in the book. He's 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 like not in the book as much as say uh, Betteridge or Blake. Uh, but mm-hmm. I find that the part that he participates in does make him sort of a principal, and he does recur near yeah. the end as well. He does. Yeah. So you. Yeah. So you could argue that Betteridge and Blake really are the two principles of this story because 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 Betteridge connects all the threads together because mm-hmm. uh, he's tied to the Verinder estate uh, and he also has his own view on things and he's connected to Franklin Blake emotionally uh, mm-hmm. through loyalty through uh, just the threads of the story itself. So you know there is an arguable distance that we can go on who is the principles of this story but no Mm -hmm. matter what we have to give a grade so for the grade i'm going to go with a three and a half because i see how the portrayal of blake diminishes him as a character but i still and i and and so that kind of diminishes him as a principle but i feel that betteridge and cuff sort of fill in the blanks that franklin blake has Mm -hmm. left us to fill so i'm gonna i'm gonna go with a three and a half for the principles Nice one. Okay. Mm. And just in regard to what you were telling me about that case, mm. uh, I did recently see the adaptation, The Murder on the Orient Express, uh-huh, and yeah. the backstory to that novel is very familiar to what you have told me. Oh, right. The cool. death of a child, the mm. how it affected the family, how it affected the prosecutor involved, and mm-hmm. uh, and everything leading up to this moment uh, that is very imp- crucial to the storytelling of the murder on the Orient Express. So it'll be interesting if we take on that novel, it will be very interesting to, to compare that to. Ah, for sure. We do have an Agatha Christie coming up later this year, later this season. I know, um, death on the Nile, death on the Nile, I think is the one we got set up, don't we? Yeah. I mean, if you want to do Murder on the Orient Express, that's something that we can discuss if you want to do one or the other. But, but, because I know the first yeah, Agatha the Christie, yeah. isn't it a mysterious affair at Styles? I think that's mm-hmm. the first that's right. story. Yeah. 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 Well, we we'll, did we'll toy around with that. the idea of doing all of them. We toyed around with the do- idea of doing her as or a season, Or at least a couple of them. Yeah, yeah. At least a couple of them. Like, do a Poirot, do a Miss Marple, just to kind of get the feel. She, you know, she was a very influential writer in the genre, so we have to give her all the kudos at some point in the series. Yeah, we'll get there for sure. We will get there. Um, then the thing with Investigation Buddy is that this is this is a score that we gave yes to the plot and to the structure, but also to the writing. And it, it's an interesting mix. It's always a contentious it's always a contentious category to score because for me, the writing the writing was better than good in the book, but it wasn't the best that I've experienced from this period of English literature. Um, the, the character writing was particularly strong, I felt, but some of what Collins was trying to push over as suspense, for me, it did kind of fall a bit flat or, or overinflated. Maybe it was too long in the tooth. Some of the, the stretchy, the kind of carried on and dragged out explanations of things. And uh, although I understand that that was characterization too, because Betteridge does go on and on and he says as much, it, he telegraphs that about himself. I, I didn't find, like, there was much menace in the Indians who arrived in Yorkshire. Like, we knew why they were there, but they were pretty polite. You know, I, I didn't sense a lot of threat to those scenes. The prose 
was pretty meandering, heavily so at times in the first half. But I, like I say, I, I know that this was telegraphed by the characters. Overall, I think that Collins's writing style was better than good, but just it was it wasn't a piping hot cup of tea. Do you know what I mean? It, it was a warm cup of tea. I, I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was great. I've read better in this era than Collins in terms of the style. I'm just talking style. It's very. I think it's because we're dealing with missives. Uh, or, or just uh, people's perspectives as written down, and and Collins was adamant on capturing that in his written yeah. writing. So I think any sort of uh, literary flourish is absent, uh, or style is okay. absent from the writing of the Moonstone. Right. Although okay. it could be argued that this yeah. is his style, and despite that, though, like you know, there is not a lot of, uh, I guess, poise to the writing of uh, the Moonstone. He does manage, however, to make certain events and characters shine off the page uh, in a believable way. So I do appreciate that about him. But if you were to compare him to, say, Charles Dickens, just the level of language and terms of plot development and irony Mm -hmm. and other matters is very, uh, is much more complex. So the Moonstone is not a complex story. But you can see, because you can see its building blocks, you can see the thematic ideas that. Collins is is using to tell his story. And they're very, very clear to anyone who has done any kind of literary theory in, you know, in high school or post-secondary education. Mm. And maybe it is unfair of me. I'm just listening to you talk. Maybe it is a little bit unfair of me to kind of slap a, a lower score for a lack of a style that I really like because, you know, he's constructed different narrative voices and it's through those filters that he's interpreting the world and he's giving the information. So I suppose that maybe I'm not giving that side of things as much credit, the the, the sculpting of different narrative voices telling the same story. Maybe I need to give a bit more credit to that. But I, I don't think I gave a bad mark for investigation. But before I talked about the plot, I just wanted to get that out there. So I appreciate your two cents on it, because I do think that this is a complicated style book, because what am I looking at, character style or singular style? I think there is no singular style, and maybe that's what I was offset by. Yeah, I can see its popularity because you can approach it in many different ways. Like someone could could look at it from terms of as a structuralist uh, in literary theory. Yeah, yeah. They, they can look at it from that aspect, but then they can also look at the story in terms of: is it a good mystery novel? Is it entertaining? Does it? Yeah, you know, d- yeah. does to me like if I were although to me I guess in terms of the mystery novels that we read so far, it's probably not as entertaining. I think the story and the, the story itself, the bare bones of it, enthralled me. But mm-hmm. I, but I can see a more modern author kind of giving a uh, uh, kind of giving it the oomph to it, mm-hmm. it, it it needed like i can i'm surprised actually there's not a lot of adaptations of this book available because i think a, a, a very good director uh, a, a very good filmmaker yeah. screenplay yeah. and cast could make something really interesting and atmospheric i'll go into that later uh regarding mm-hmm. the story yeah well you know buddy um I, I did really enjoy the epistolary structure and the fact that Blake had instructed each person to write only as far as their truth and not to surmise, not to suggest, not to suppose, not yes. to sort of, you know, guess at what happens next. I like that because it forces us as readers to pick apart and kind of piece together the facts. Um, the second half of the book for me was much more exciting than the first, even though I do think Betteridge, as we've intimated already, was probably the best or at least my favorite narrative voice. Maybe, maybe. Um, 
I, I did like the story the was the longest. Yeah. yeah, it was the longest. Yeah, but you know, I think the book really comes into its own with respect to what it offers in theme. You know, this theme. Yes. I, I don't know how you see it, but the the one theme that I think permeates this entire story, and I'm sure if there's you know study guides consulted and written on this, but I think this appearance versus reality, this idea of disguise, is what pervades the text because. Okay, fine. You'd you'd ex- you'd expect a certain amount of that from the genre anyway, right? Whether it's in its inception yes. or later on. But Franklin Blake sure looked guilty. Do you know what I mean? Like he sure <laughs> looked guilty. His false accusation is the book's major confusion. But th- there's a lot of innocence that trickles down through other characters. You get Ezra Jennings, who's feared and disliked because of his oddities. Think of Betteridge's opinions. Um, he's actually helpful, an honest guy who struggles. And we don't know about his struggles. Gooseberry, whose eyes are kind of bulging out of his head, like leading us to think he's a bit odd and weird and incapable. He sees the sharpest detail. He's the only guy that actually tracks down the right suspect at the end of the story. And Cuff Chuck, and, right. and, you know, he, he praises him to the sky. You know, we've got, you've got characters who, um, Godfrey Abelwhite, in his disguise, the appearance versus reality. You know, you've got, you've got a lot of characters in here who are played differently to how they actually are. Um, and I like that. I think it's, it's on the nose in some cases, right? With disguise, but it's a, it's a textured theme throughout the story. And, you also get the class conflict in there too. Like, you know, you yes. can't trust, you can't trust because money doesn't equal goodness. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of that going through the story as well. What do you think on that theme that. of disguise? Anything you want to add to that? Yeah. The disguise aspect is very, uh, is very important because everyone keeps secrets for a reason and, and pretends to be someone else on the surface for their mm-hmm. own reasons. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they think it's for, you know, the benefit of others, you know, I mean, discretion is very much part of Victorian society. So, mm-hmm. I mean, and th- this goes for like the lower and the upper class. And we don't want to admit that we're wrong on things. And we want to believe that the world is ordered a certain way. Like Betteridge feels that he needs Robinson Crusoe to define everything in his life. And mm-hmm. it's, it's really funny, though, that even though, like, you can see that, like, if Seagrave even or 100 uh, percent Cuff is getting close to finding out the culprit and it might be leading to Miss Verinder when Betteridge is, uh, you know, experiencing the investigation. He is basically almost turning these people into enemies because they threaten his household. So it just yeah. shows how much class and a distinction mm-hmm. it almost is above the law itself in terms of you know if you're loyalty if you're loyal to someone then that doesn't mean anything and i think that goes into the theme of rachel and blake as well because if if she believes that or she knows because she saw it that he took the moonstone then why doesn't she turn him in instead she just rebuffs mm-hmm. him and maybe she wants him to like find out or for him to come to terms about who he is and turn himself in because or maybe she wants to protect him because deep down she does love him, even though she's ashamed of it now. So yeah. you get all these complications of people doing things on the surface, mm-hmm. but they are doing it for a particular reason, and they, everyone has their own agenda. And I think yeah. I think what really I think it's not more about the disguise, but I think it's just that every character has their own agency for the reasons they do things. Mm-hmm. And maybe this will tie into the perpetrator evaluation, but Godfrey Abelwhite I think is also is also in that boat. Yeah, he, he doesn't sure. seem like he's a terrible person. No. You, you know, like, I, no, like no, he's he not a monster. No. He's, a, he's a snob and he's he's a product of his upbringing as well. Yeah, and hey, exactly. Yeah. And, he is arrog- and, and he is arrogant, you know, just like our friend... Um, Franklin, yeah. 
yeah, Fr- Franklin as well. But you know, but he just makes the, but he makes he made a mistake, and that he had to find a way to get himself out of it. But mm-hmm. the, the 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 difference is that how the two characters extricate themselves from their uh, mistakes, and also, of course, the the distinction between the mistakes that they have made. Yeah, and it's really funny, if, if that isn't makes it? Sense. Like this rising young male generation within the mid to late Victorian era, how many of them went away, got into serious debt? You think of the home story, the barrel coronet. You think about mm-hmm. um, the, the the young guy who gets killed by uh, Holmes's assassin. What's his name? The, in the empty house, uh, Adair. Oh, um, the young guy Adair uh, who gets killed in S- the empty house. Sebastian. Moran, Sebastian Moran, yeah, like all of Sebastian these, Moran, yes. All of these young guys growing and building up so much debt, needing to clear their name through through things like this, you know. Do you know, buddy? Just before we move off investigation, I also want to ask you this. I was reading, <laughs> and this might seem a bit stupid, but over here the game's called Cluedo. But you and I grew up with Clue, right? We grew up with Clue. I feel yes. like I feel like you know. Uh, there's a bit of forced suspense when Cuff asks Franklin to hold the name of the suspect in the envelope until later. You know what I mean? Like that, that just oh, to me yeah. is like it's like where you put the name of the killer uh, face down in the middle of the the board game, and you then. But then I got to thinking about it. Like you keep it until the end of the game to reveal who's who, and you make your guesses. But there's a lot of comparisons in this book to the game of Clue. Like think about the characters. You've got the maid. You've got the professor. You've got the doctor. You've got the lady. You've got the police officer. You've got all the same type of characters. So did the Moonstone influence the creation of this board game, or did it just give rise to tropes which later influenced the board yes. game? You know. And speaking of tropes, I think it's really important that we talk about this now that we're going to like the narrative and the aesthetic of the narrative. Uh, I just wanted something to share with you here. Uh, this is a list of sort of the tropes that are found that are, or sort of originate in a way in the Moonstone that are, of course, adapted by many, many uh, mystery novels to come. So, you know, you have the uh, think of thinking of, you know, Sherlock Holmes and, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. You have a robbery in an English country estate. Mm-hmm. You got the inside job. I mean... Uh, look at the naval affair, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, the naval treaty. For naval example. treaty. Yeah, yeah. I knew what you meant. Yeah, the use of red herrings. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is this the skilled investigator, uh, yeah. uh, and of course the incompetent local police. <laughs> Seagrave, yeah. The inquiry of the detect of the of the of the investigation itself, and the, how a de- how a detective does his job, which is very much pulled from Poe, but mm-hmm. I think extra- extrapolated even more so in a f- more familiar environment uh, to the reader uh, mm-hmm. than Poe ever did, and making yeah, it yeah. part of a uh, of a romantic narrative is key to normalizing it. Yes, that can I? I just want to sit there with you on that point for a second because that is a major difference between this writer and Poe. And I don't think Poe was trying to extrapolate, but the extrapolation, the process of making it a longer story, I mean, you can absolutely sink in some of Dupin's reflection, some of that narrative chat, you know, that that the exposition even of those stories is really dense. Whereas here, the extrapolation and the explanation is, I think, more central to pushing the story forward, eh? Yes. Yes, you can see it being used as a, a pose ideas being used as a literary device. Yeah, yeah. And 
I'm sure Collins read some Poe, but then we also have his background as a lawyer and being associated mm-hmm. with police mm-hmm. investigations. Uh, he's very familiar with this. Yeah. You have a large number of su- of false suspects or red herrings. Uh, you have a large number of suspects. And of course, you have sort of a, a drawing room aspect of who could it be. Now, the case is solved a little different than, you know, like, I guess, in the formal <laughs> yeah. kind of way. Like it's a little unconventional. The locked, yeah, the, the, the locked room. But still, it's there. Yeah, it's there. And the idea of, of, of reconstructing the crime, which we have in a mm-hmm. kind of brilliant way that you never really expected from what is more of a seminal than later text in the mystery genre. Yeah, it is a bit pre-forensic, isn't it? It is pre-forensic, but it's very interesting. And it's so ambitious, but you buy it in how it's being yeah. conveyed. And, and you want Collins it to work. Brilliant, was yeah. brilliant at that. Yeah. And you can, see the, you can see the passion that he had behind conveying this idea. Um, and of course, we have, you know, the, those twists and turns and final twists of the plot. That's all in there as well. Mm-hmm. So as you can see, the DNA of the mystery genre taken from Poe expanded by Collins, and then, of course, formalized by Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the evolution of it all is definitely there. And you're right, the, the emergence of the tropes, uh, very, very alive here. Um, I was just thinking, though, we should we should do an episode on Clue. We should just do an episode, like uh, on the Parker Brothers game. I think it's Parker Brothers game. We'll do a little episode mm-hmm. on it, some history, you know, some talk about different versions, editions. I'd like to do that. We could play a game of Clue. That would be the most boring four-way <laughs> podcast. Play Clue. Mm. Let us know what you think about it. Maybe we can like podcast it. And, <laughs> if, we, if we can get more than one, if we can get more than one person involved, that could definitely work. Anyway, buddy, what did you go for for investigation? What was your score? Because I went three and a half. Okay, on on merit of both and every uh, of style and of structure and of the actual investigation, I went for three and a half. What did you go for? I was I. Uh, to be fair, like, even though, like, yeah, so the literary style didn't really rock my mind. But again, I put into consideration of what Collins was trying to do. And I think he mm-hmm. succeeded. This, however, did not, you know, make me want Betteridge to get to the freaking point uh, <laughs> of his of his narrative. But I but then I and I felt that, like, the writer was deliberately dropping, you know, clues for us as we went along yeah. that all this stuff is obviously going to be somehow important and you know that's very normal but it kind of takes you out of the uh, i guess out of the story a little bit and you get a little bit impatient but looking back at it the first narrative is sort of a great setup for the rest of the story now i find that the second part where we get into clack for example while humorous i found that like this is basically author saying so this is what people did afterwards and these parts are important plot points that we need to establish but the pacing was kind of slow for me there and i think it could have been worked in better but because of how the how the the epistolary structure as you said is is produced it just it, it fits it better but does it make the story or the enjoyment mm-hmm. of the story better that is the question that we have to yeah. consider here then we have of course the pickup with franklin blake despite him being kind of a dull character the, what is what happens to him it is fueling the narrative as i said it's the chain the, the, the you're on a crazy train now going into yeah. opium and redemption and all these mm-hmm. twists and turns Quick that are sand, occurring yeah. and quicksand exactly and uh it's your first you're bogged down in it and you're wondering where the you know how to crawl back to the top but then once you get that get to that point and truth is revealed unburied as one would say mm-hmm. 
you know, that's when that's when everything starts coming together. And I feel that the pacing there following the midsection with I guess the midsection, I want to describe it with the clack and bruff uh I wouldn't call it filler, but in a way it is. Yeah, but chapters, still, yeah. chapters. It, it, to me, there's a little bit of a lull in the storytelling. But it, I know, I, I, but I understand how important that it was. But to me, that kind of brings the my enjoyment of the story and the writing of the narrative down a little mm-hmm. bit. So I'm going to settle on maybe you think is generous, but I'm just in terms of how like everything was put together, and I think Collins succeeded with his ambition with the story, and we know from its uh, its praise up until the modern day, up, up until today, we know that he, he definitely nailed it. And so I'm going to give this a four. Okay, no problemo. Perpetrators, we're moving on to perpetrators now. Uh, Godfrey Abelwhite is a perpetrator, Rachel's cousin, double life. He's heavily in debt, proposes to Rachel on two occasions. He pockets the diamond to pay for his debts. He's killed at the end by the Indians. Um, I'm wondering if there's a play on names too. I mean, I, I, I mean, this is a separate point. We can talk about it with the supporting cast, but the names in this book are just fantastic. <laughs> I love the character names in this book. Um, What's with his disguise, though? I mean, like, he's dressed as an Indian, a darker-skinned man with a big beard. When it's the Indians who are being sought, like, to me, it seems pretty careless. But then I'm also thinking, okay, wait a minute, is this on the nose? Is this kind of dark skin equals uh, dark character? Is this some sort of, you know, just some sort colonial of colonial racist. thing we've got? And Because th- if you think about it as well, the three Indian priests who are not villains or perpetrators in the story, they're trying to restore what was stolen from them. I mean, they are in the right. I mean, killing isn't in the right, but they're in the right to, to try to reclaim what was theirs and what belongs to them in that sense. Yeah, they're also, avatars of justice in the narrative. Yeah, sure. absolutely. I, I feel like they are. And yet the story makes us, through either its writing or through the white bias or the empire xenophobia or the reader's ethnocentricity, whatever it is, the the, the story does kind of make them feel like criminals. I mean, I don't know if if you read it the same way and how you do understand it, but... This would have been amplified even more 180, 160 years ago, right? Like, big time. So, do you think that Collins is writing them as and as they would have been... Do you think that Collins is writing them deliberately as kind of shady characters? Or is that just something that I am reading through the filter of history? Like, what do you think? I think you're reading it through the filter of history, but he's also writing to his audience at the time as yeah, well. Yeah, so he yeah. knows that, you know, these kind of things are going to be picked up and people will find it popular. If You know, and and, and that's the thing. But there's uh-huh. also this, I think, a thematic decision going on here where Collins <clears throat> is sort of taking the idea of this, like these primal Hindu forces in India and kind of, it's kind of like you know like the curse of the mummy's tomb mm-hmm. you're you take something mm-hmm. from some kind of culture beyond any yep. beyond any or any civilization beyond what you're used to and you steal from that or you take from that and therefore i guess you could almost compare you know Herncastle stealing the diamond is almost a way Collins in some kind of subtle way making a a, a commentary towards colonialism that yeah. we take and we steal mm-hmm. yeah. and then we bring this yeah. back to us and we get our just desserts. Yes. Even though yeah. in the same mind frame, I guess maybe that makes it a little half and half in terms of what Collins was feeling as someone raised in that society versus, you know, what his feelings are about it is that 
Godfrey is trying to disguise himself as a dark-skinned man to mm-hmm. escape. And that gives the reader the idea that he is, you know, he's up to no good. Yes. But it's also sort of like the disguise that no one would that some, that no one would really expect. So that can, can that can be uh, argued as I, well. Either way, yeah, I guess it could be. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? And and no one could, you know, like he was taking all the precautions he possibly can. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's an argument. That's debatable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. in the end, those priests take back the diamond and it's put mm-hmm. back to where, where it should have been. And afterwards, the pall of despair or misfortune is lifted over uh-huh. the Verinders and, and Franklin Blake. And then they're able to live happily ever after, as I said. So... So do you read this it's, then as a charitable sort of um, moralistic ending that that Wilkins or that Wilkie Collins is trying to give back, make a comment, a social comment on how we are pillaging these imperial territories, we are taking these indigenous knowledge systems, and we're just squeezing what we want out of them? And I mean, is this a book that works well to criticize colonial values and colonial ideology, or is that something that I'm trying to see through a post-colonial filter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, do you think that Collins think is doing can... these things or are they just accidental as emergences in the text? In the end, I don't really know, man. It's, it's, it's hard a tricky to say. One, eh? yeah. It's a tricky one. I think the evidence is there and you could debate it. We probably have to read more about Collins as a person and what his feelings yeah, were yeah. towards colonialism and stuff. You did say he did write political stuff later on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, was that does. political yeah. stuff critical of the empire? It was I mean, definitely critical so of marriage. I can tell you that much. Mm-hmm. Institutions like see. marriage and that type of stuff. Yeah, I see. I see. Interesting, you mentioned marriage because one of the things I read about in terms of critics, in terms of literary uh, studies of the Moonstone, is the idea of like. Franklin's act almost being like synonymous to rape almost or mm, deflowering, I think is what it said, is because he crosses the threshold, uh, like the flowery threshold of her bedroom and takes the diamond out, mm. right? So mm-hmm. there's definitely symbolism in there. Yeah, I have there to definitely say. is. Yeah, there is for sure. Mm-hmm. And, 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 then it's, and then it's revealed, you know, that of course, that he is redeemed because he was actually trying to preserve that from him when there was a greater villain, uh, you know, Godfrey Abelwhite. Mm-hmm. Now, it's funny, too, if you think of, like, you know, nomenclature, the naming of Godfrey Abelwhite. So, yeah, Godfrey that's, that's indicated that he's yeah. a God, he's Godly a God-loving guy. man, right? Abelwhite. You know, who, <laughs> Abel, white, interesting, but Abel, of course, you also think of the Bible and you think of Cain and Abel, right? Mm-hmm, but... Mm-hmm. It just indicates someone of a high moral distinction. In fact, you know, again, as, as you were saying, the investigation part, that's part of the disguise, right? The disguise. Yeah, and he so, darkens his skin at the end. So there's definitely this, that, that's on the nose, isn't it? I mean, there's no other way. It Collins is. knows what he's doing. He's telegraphing that early if we were to read into the foreshadowing. Now, would you argue that Blake is also his is also not just a protagonist, but also his own antagonist? Because he is kind of the culprit. He is the perpetrator here, right? Yeah, he is. He's a victim of his own arrogance. Uh-huh. And, you know, and there's also, we talked about, you know, kind of unlikable how he brushes off Rosanna Spearman. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, like, he's flawed. He's a flawed hero, but he's also sort of a perpetrator because he did take the diamond for reasons. And I found that kind of refreshing in terms of a perpetrator from the novels that we read before. Yeah. yeah. So he thought he was doing it on, for good. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and maybe, you can also maybe. throw on, or maybe, yeah. 
But you can also throw on, uh, I'm trying to think of another, of oh, course, C- Colonel John, Godfrey. he started it all off. I mean, Colonel John Herncastle is is really the guy who, who starts and stretches out this curse, much like our friend uh, Baskerville, right? In, in Baskerville. Yeah. And what about Dr. Candy, too? He's sort of, he's a sympathetic antagonist. Yeah, and, yeah. He is sympathetic, yeah. And yeah, I kind of found it very amusing how he was the cause of Franklin's uh, <laughs> deep sleep and, of course, his overall situation. <laughs> and, of course, the fate, you know, the idea of the moon of the Moonstone even kind of being a villain, too, because it's like it's something that you steal and you brought back with you and it gives it and it mm-hmm. curses everybody. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea of fate concerning the Moonstone and just being in the presence of the Moonstone and all the hell that it unleashes. Yep. Yeah. And so uh, there's all these things that you can check for the perpetrators of the story and overall, like who deserves what and all the perpetrators are sympathetic. So it's, it's, it's really interesting that there's no one here who's truly a monster. And that's refreshing, I think for a, um, a mystery novel, especially at this time. And we are in big, and we are, and we do, and we are treating, you know, Colin's writing in terms of the dark skin and the colonial attitudes as possibly ambiguous as well. So I totally, think that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, you so, know, we haven't we haven't said much about we haven't said much about the the diamond itself. Let me just and we haven't quoted much. And I know that's not something we tend to do too much here in our single off our, our you know our one off episodes. But let's just have a look here at how Wilkie Collins describes the moonstone. I'll just read from the book, just a short section here. Nice imagery. Lord bless us! It was a diamond as large or nearly as a plover's egg. The light that streamed from it was like the light of the harvest moon. When you looked down into the stone, you looked into a yellow deep that drew your eyes into it, so that they saw nothing else. It seemed unfathomable. This jewel that you could hold between your finger and thumb seemed unfathomable as the heavens themselves. We set it in the sun, and then shut the light out of the room, and it shone awfully out of the depths of its own brightness with a moony gleam in the dark. Yeah, interesting how it gives so much... um, lunar connotations there too right to, to fit it with the the shrine from which it came i, I like that yeah, description. The shrine. you know it's almost and personified have, yeah it is very personified and you know i talked about you know the shankara stones yeah. and mm-hmm. how it's essential to the civilization there and bringing it back was key to you know their culture so there's that uh but yeah perpetrators i think was probably my highest mark of okay. the story okay I really embrace the idea of Blake as his own antagonist. That was very refreshing. Mm-hmm. Then we have the Moonstone. Then we have Abel White, who we get clues on. And we do get in the second, I think the second part, even though I kind of dissed it in the investigation, the Clack narrative really paints a picture of, uh, starts to paint a picture of who Godfrey Abel White is, this like, this charitable Christian hero. And we begin to see, you know, like the cracks in his in his image through that chapter. And so I think he was fleshed out pr- pr- uh, pretty well. And he intrigued me more than Blake, to be honest. Mm. So I wanted to get more of him. And, and there was a, there was still a mystery or something going on with him, right, that you needed to know more about. Mm-hmm. And I think that was key to the investigation. It would be tied in no matter what. So I was feeling that when I was reading it. Cool. So overall, I'm going to give the perpetrators... Four and a half. Four and a half. Nice one. Good high score there for you. I went three and a half overall. Uh, I did like the ensemble feeling of the perpetrators. Even Septimus Lucre, you know he's a a shady character. He's not a perpetrator, but you know he's a shady character, his dealings and pawns and whatnot. And he's certainly described by, um, is it Cuff who describes him? Yeah, it's Cuff who describes him as a despicable figure, isn't it? So, you know. He feels like a Dickens character. Yeah, he really does, doesn't he? Yeah. He's more like Smallweed. (laughs) 
Yeah, I can see like someone like Bern Gorman playing him. <laughs> well, let's move over then to environs, um, because environs for me, there were some really nice standout locations. I think you'd agree with me that the Shivering Sands were the highlight, one of the highlights of the yes. story for sure. Not just because one of the key scenes happens in it, but just the way the sands are described. Um, I can just read that little section here. I've got it marked. The last of the evening light was fading away, and over all the desolate place there still hung a still and awful calm. The heave of the main ocean on the great sandbank out in the bay was a heave that made no sound. The inner sea lay lost and dim without a breath of wind to stir it. Patches of nasty ooze floated, yellow-white on the dead surface of the water. Scum and slime shone faintly in certain places, where the last of the light still caught them on the two great spits of rock jutting out, north and south into the sea. It was now the time of the turn of the tide. And even as I stood there waiting, the broad brown face of the quicksand began to dimple and quiver, the only moving thing in all the horrid place. Again, characterized, personified, and to think that this is where Rosanna Spearman goes to get, not peace necessarily, but because she's magnetically attracted to the isolation of it, says a lot about her character, a lot about her own inner turmoil. I think that the Shivering Sand is just such a cool location, you know, to have there next to Verinder's house. Um... But really, Josh, there's not a lot. I mean, a lot of it's just kind of country house drama, right? Like you said a few moments ago, you got Abel White's house, Mr. Candy's house, Lucy Yolland's little fisherman's family hut, which is cool, I guess. Um, Lady Verinder's home in London. The Yorkshire sites are far more interesting. Um, yeah, you get the pub yes. or the inn in London, but they don't really get a lot of that. I, I like... No. I like the Yorkshire sites. I went three and a half overall, even though I would give a five to the Shivering Sands because it's so cool. It's important plot point. It's important agency in the story and the way it's rendered by Collins. I think he was really in a zone there. Um, and he that was. really, really gothic. You know, if, if anything features the Victorian gothic, then that's it, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, that that was definitely like a Bronte moment almost. It was, yeah. But I that's a good one. That's good, buddy. Yeah, that's a Bronte moment. But I went to, I went three and a half uh for the my environment. As did cool. I. Oh you did too, cool. Right. Yeah, different just to reasons. Kind of share my thoughts. So despite being told about these places, I feel the structure of the narrative lack the feeling of being there for me, minus mm. of course the shivering sands. Like mm-hmm. I was told how Franklin located the box of the shivering sands. And furthermore, we were told about the Shivering Sands and how it was described on paper. And it does seem foreboding and creepy, but I found the distancing of the narrator's voice kind of robbed me these moments of impact, at least just a little bit. Okay, I, I get that. I feel that. I get the, that, yeah. So you didn't feel like yeah. the character was actually, because you knew he was writing it, so you knew he had already survived it all. So that took away some of the impetus and drive. A little bit. A little okay. bit, it did, okay. take, it, it sure. did take that away. Like, But at the same time, I still, I still was kind of haunted by the idea of it. And it kind of left me tense me. whenever it was talked yeah. about. I really liked because, it. It like, got I me think, that moment. Yeah, and I think also you have that pathos with Rosanna Spearman, that connected mm-hmm. to that. And, mm-hmm. and, and that is definitely a help in terms of Collins being able to establish his atmosphere and connecting it to the narrative at the same time. Yeah. So yeah. good on him for that. I think, as I mentioned earlier, an adaptation could play on this atmosphere for this mm, tale yes, quite well. Yeah, particularly and the country I, house stuff could be darker and could be a little bit more. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, I get you. In terms of lighting, yeah, or yeah. Hor- even horror gothic style with like the candlelight and yeah, stuff like natural lighting, is like that sort of right. stuff. Yeah, it's it's a right blueprint, absolutely. Uh, yeah, but you know, this description is there regardless. We can't argue that. 
but to me, it's the strength of the characters that mm. makes the the atmosphere stand out. It gives a semblance of it more so than you know other authors could capture. Right. All right. Fair statement. And uh, speaking of those characters, let's move on now and talk about the supporting cast. Um, this is our final uh, feature in the pipes. And you said a few moments ago that you gave your highest mark to the perpetrators. I gave my highest mark to the supporting cast. And uh, it's been a long time, buddy, since I've awarded full marks to, to this category in any single novel. But I think that this novel has just got great characters. And I think for me personally, knowing how critical I've been of some other things of the text, it, it's just not fair for me to go less than full marks on this one because even if I didn't like them, I thought they were all important and I thought they were all incredible. Like, I'm not going to go through all of them, obviously. That would be boring as hell. But I think we've got to dry out a couple of them, you know, like Mr. Candy, like you said it, you said it. He allows Blake to become his own antagonist, which is remarkable. Yeah. And in terms of a supporting figure, that's 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 a support to the story. It's so important to the story. Yes. He's not a great conversationalist, right? And I also wonder... How much of his drugging Franklin is a practical joke and how much of it is to actually help him? How much of the Hippocratic oath and that sort of moral goodness is in him? Does he really want to help him with the with the delirious tremor, the, the shakes? Does he want to help him with the irritable nights? Or is he just trying to win, vengefully win this conversation, this argument they had earlier in the night, you know? Could be a bit of both. Bit of both, yeah. It's interesting. It's up there for debate. Then there's Mr. Murthwaite, who you said is a trope. But he narrates the final part of the story with the diamond being returned to India. And I like his Indiana Jonesing in the story. It's, it's kind of interesting. Plus, the way he encounters... This was one of my favorite short scenes in the story. I liked how he encountered the Indians at, in Yorkshire, how he went straight to them, you know? And I, I, I kind of like his swagger, even though it's short-lived in the text. It's like he's kind of a... You know, like, he feels like a trope. But I do agree that he seems like he's not, I mean, he's, he's a product of the colonial civilization, mm -hmm. but you can see the respect and yeah, reverence yeah. that he has for the culture. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, then there's Colonel John Herncastle. I mean, there's, like I said earlier, a bit of the Baskerville legend here with him. He was once called, yes. honor, he was once called Honorable John, the, the story tells us, but India turned him wicked. It, it turned him villainous almost. Like There's an ambiguity also in the gift that he leaves her, Rachel, isn't there? Like He wants, in fact, he, he says it's necessary his sister is alive when the gift is given to Rachel. Now, is this because he wants his sister to know that he's passing a curse on to her because we know there was bad blood? Or is this an apology? Does he want his sister to see yeah. that, look, I'm giving this, I'm trying to make amends for what I've done wrong in my life. This is a very valuable thing. She can cut it up. She can get millions for it. Like, I'm trying to help support the family finance. It's interesting. Is he is he trying to make up for a wrongful past? I mean, we've only gone through three characters, but two of those three are really, really interesting characters. You know what I mean? In terms of what they offer the story and support. Yeah, there you can't deny the complexity of the character and yeah. the fact that we it's find there, such yeah. ambiguity to his actions. Mm -hmm. And we've got Sergeant Cuff. We talked about him with respect to the road hell house murder and maybe where Collins was was drawing some inspiration from but he's great he's sharp he's intelligent you know he he manipulates Josh as well as he holds conversations he manipulates conversations he suspects Rosanna and Rachel are working in tandem at first uh, but then his later suspicion of Abelwhite proves correct and you know lets us play that whole clue game that we talked about a few moments ago yeah um or Cluedo, as you say Math Matthew uh, Cluedo as they say over here Matthew Bruff 
the Verinder's lawyer, he's like a father figure to Rachel. I think he's really cool in his yes. own little way. Um, I like I like Mr. Breath. Yeah. He's uh, he, he would be a good one in the scene. adaptation. Oh, he definitely would be. Uh, I particularly like the like this the, the whole thing with him being so skeptical of the experiment because we were mm-hmm. kind of too. So he's kind of a of an audience yeah. surrogate there, he and is, yeah, uh, finding his yeah. like his papers his papers more interesting. But uh-huh. he's also a man <laughs> of logic and intelligence. And when he sees something, you know, he doesn't question it. You know, people, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't question his own eyes, and he does, and, and he and he's not blinded by his arrogance. He's only blinded by what he doesn't know. And once he he's proven wrong, he accepts it. And then he That's true, moves yeah. on, right? So mm-hmm. I, I find him a very strong, strong character in, in that way. Mm-hmm. Ezra Jennings, one of my favorite characters oh in the story. He's a true symbol oh, of that yeah. appearance versus reality theme. And one of my favorite scenes in the book is when um, he and Godfrey say goodbye to each other towards the end. Well, I guess, you know, three-fifths of the way through it. And then Godfrey. they go down different paths. Sorry. Um, when he and Franklin say goodbye to each other down different paths because Franklin feels like he hasn't got anything from them. And then they stop at a distance and they turn back to each other. And that really, that precipitous moment allows for the journals to, uh, of Mr. Candy to come out and all of the rest of it just starts flooding and pushes the narrative. Yes. Like That's a real turning point yes. in the story. I don't know if yes, it's absolutely. the climbing. I don't know if it's the climax, but it certainly does push the denouement forward, doesn't it? It does. Because if those two guys don't come back together, then nothing else happens. The reclamation of relationship doesn't occur The between Rachel and uh, Franklin. We don't get the truth of Godfrey. So I think that that is maybe the turning point of the novel. And, and I love argue, that Ezra Jennings is involved. Ezra Jennings, yeah. And I like the fact, too, that, like, you know... He, even though he's dying, you know, he wants to, to do something to help somebody. And I think the fact that someone, you know, looked past his foreign, I know the way that like Blake knew that there was something that he had to get from Jennings and he was willing to put aside his prejudices mm-hmm. and reach out to Jennings. I, even though he was for his own help, you can yeah. tell they were pretty it was much self-serving. Like almost, yeah. It was self-serving. But in the end, I think Blake was very grateful. We know that Rachel was very grateful to uh, Jennings and you really mm-hmm. show the likeness of her how much I liked her character because uh, how how loyal she is to her family how loyal she is to mm-hmm. um to Franklin Blake as well even despite you know despising him for, you know uh during the situation but and also how easily she accepted Jennings as well you know despite his uh, countenance and you know she was very grateful so I, I really, I really, I really liked that part of the story, and uh, it's very hard to kind of describe in words because I found that part the most emotionally powerful part of the story was 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 Jennings. He really kind of, yeah. it kind of took everything. It kind of took me right off the page. Uh, it, it took me, as I mentioned a couple times in the writing, you know, you're kind of taken off the page a little bit. But yeah. then, you know, this just pulled me right in, mesmerizing me like you know the yellow light in the diamond. But seeing, you know. The, the beautiful diamond that is Jennings' soul, you know, mm-hmm. and I just He's found that yeah. really, yeah, really fascinating and uh, and moving. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. And, you know, that, I think, to give Collins a bit of credit, to be charitable to him, if we're looking for evidence of how he's trying to write against the grain, there's a man yes. who is considered an outsider, who has, um, who, who's kind of, playing on these xenophobic ideas that would certainly be promulgated throughout society and yet he is lovable he is respectful he's loyal he's dutiful and i I like that about that it's a bit more modern from things we've seen in this era isn't it 
It definitely is. And that can kind of make you wonder about Godfrey Abelwhite's disguise <laughs> yeah. and how, yeah. Yeah. you know, underneath that disguise of, of someone who we now know and tr- uh, who we were able to accept, you know, mm-hmm. be, even though it, despite his foreign looks, we're able to accept him as a, as a genuine human being and a personality and not some, you know, bestial interpretation mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. Of, of, of the savage. We're in, but underneath it, we just get Godfrey Abelwhite, a broken man, a mm-hmm. broken, flawed man underneath it. And so I, I just find that really interesting. Yeah, There's it is. almost like it's in, the, the themes are in war with itself because it, I think, again, Collins is writing to that audience. But at the same time, he's also saying something about it between the lines. For sure. And we've got Drusilla Clack, right, who is a vehicle of dramatic irony, if ever there was one. We know that Rachel isn't a spoiled brat, but she insists that she is. We know that Godfrey's not a saint, but he insists that he is. And, you know, also, uh, while her narrative voice is funny, as you've already drawn on, I think it's ridiculous, the imagery of her stashing religious pamphlets all around this dying lady's house (laughs) in an effort to save her soul. Like, it is actually really quite, you know, uh, carry on, isn't it? It's pretty funny. It's like, a, yeah, I like it. I like her. I, she did go on a bit, but she's an interesting character. Uh, Rosanna Spearman, tragic, sad, uh, definitely a comment on, I think, on Wilkins or on Wilkie Collins' part um, of like social victims, you know, like her part is really important and it, perhaps better than anyone else in the story. She highlights the class struggle. We get the bias, but she highlights the class struggle and the conflict of the Victorian era, you know, the, the, the deformed shoulder matches her really well with her friend, Lucy, the cripple, you know, limping Lucy Lawland uh, or Yoland, if that's her name. I, I just think nope. she's a remarkably interesting, tragic figure. And um, again, Spearman, can we make anything of that? You know, Spearman, the, the blade of fate cut through her or her own decisions. You know, I mean, we can we can Spirit do this. Destiny. We can play all of this stuff with the names of the characters. And then you get Superintendent Seagrave, right, who's a foil in the early story parts. And he's necessary so that Sergeant Cuff can be presented as the far superior figure. Uh, the light satire of the local police here, which comes back to what the, uh, the, the good text that I shared from the history by the yard um, gave yeah. us there. But I don't know. Like, I just think, and I, I might have said this before as well, but the, the, the supporting cast, like, Mr. Candy, like he doles out drugs, right? Uh, candy, he's a candy man. You got Mr. Murthwaite, <laughs> Mr. Murthwaite, which almost in its own way sounds like an Indian name, this foreign name. But then you've got Hearn Castle, strong, but also Stern is in there, at least the the alliterative or the assonance of it. Sergeant Cuff, Cuff, yeah. you know, handcuffing, like Clue and Ezra, yes. Ezra Jenkins, Ezra, very biblical name, very noble name, right? Um, yes. And we've got Drusilla Clack. Um, Septimus Lucre. These are Harry Potter characters before. Like these are names. These names. <laughs> what was are the name so of Gooseberry? Octavius. Right? Octavius Guy. That's right. Yeah, Matthew. Matthew right. Bruff. There's some great names in this book, man. There's awesome character names. Yeah, very. Yeah, very Harry anyway, Potter-esque names. I went five for five. This was my highest category. I was so pleased because even though the story isn't one that I would read or necessarily highlight. Um, again, for the greatness of narrative stitching. I really did like the structure of it. I just think the cast of characters, if you can get through their narratives, if you can get through them and you really give the story a chance, I think it's one of the best supporting casts I've read in a long time. So full marks. Yeah, man. Like, 
every character they fulfilled their function in the narrative. I thought so. Yeah. They populated the story from the lower to the upper class. Yeah. They were used sparingly. They were used sympathetically. Well, Betridge um, wasn't, but <laughs> the others, yeah. <laughs> the others were well i mean to an extent right but yeah, yeah they all seem to have their own agency is what i'm saying and yes, you can indeed. imagine yeah. reading further stories about them i want to read further stories about them mm-hmm. uh, you know oh, i'll say this you know over dickens i didn't i didn't find them as caricaturist and surrealist as some dickens characters are yeah. there was like a subtlety yeah. about them but mm-hmm. there's also sort of a workman-like use of them as well mm-hmm. which kind of takes you off the peg a little bit in terms yeah, of like it does it does of, of of the literary ambitions of the writing but at the same time they could feel tropey but yet mm-hmm. they're not mm-hmm. now while you know there's the three hindu men which i kind of put into the perpetrators anyways they still didn't come off as stereotypical as i thought and i found that they right, were yep. very loyal to the culture that they belonged in they belonged to and again they're like our avatars of justice right so I mentioned that four and a half that I, I sorry, I mentioned in regard to the perpetrators, this was this was one of the highest marks that I gave. But I'm in a hundred percent agreement with you that this supporting cast is no doubt a number five. Okay, right. So, so all right. There you go. Fair enough. That brings you then, my friend, to a total of a twenty point five. Uh, at a 25, and I'm at an 18 overall. I think I probably liked the bits I liked more, way more than the overall score might indicate. But uh, 20.5 for you is a great, great score for you. And I think the index also informs our aesthetic a little bit too, you know? Yes. So, buddy, there's our scores. Um, recommendation for the Moonstone. For me, it's definitely a recommend. I think this belongs, as you said at the outset, in the mystery shelf of every fan. Um, we were late getting that, to the yeah. party. We are late getting to the party, but I'm glad we finally showed up. Well, I don't know, but that particular party, like the one in the book... <laughs> not not but, Rachel uh, Barrender's 18th. No, we got no business there. No. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. And, uh, you know, I'll stay away from laudanum administering. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. But this is a absolute recommendation on, on my part. If you were into the mystery novel in any way, I do recommend this book. If you're sort of on the casual level, just want to read some modern, if you're into reading modern mystery novels, uh, I I guess perhaps the Victorian prose might dissuade you from it. I recommend to go past that. And, and, you know, it's a very good tome to reflect upon the time period in which it presents. Like, it really gives us a good picture of Victorian society Mm -hmm. and not kind of like in an exaggerated Dickens way. So I recommend it on that basis as like a historical text as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And I find that it's refreshing in terms of the twists and turns that, to me, is more postmodern of that genre than it is, say, in the early days of the genre when it was very archetypical and when all the tropes were starting to be established. Mm -hmm. So that I found surprising was that the resolution of the story didn't go in the direction that I thought it would. So Mm -hmm. uh, that was exciting. Yeah, and it was a little unorthodox that way. And and I think you're right to to call up or to... uh, to raise a point on the self-referential features of the the writing, because yeah, there's definitely, while not post-structuralist stuff going on here, there's definitely awareness of the construction of narrative, yeah, and the layering of narrative, which not just yeah. helps to create a, a novel, but also is necessary in understanding of a crime. So there is definitely meta stuff going on here within Wilkinson's construction or within Collins's construction. Yeah, I agree with that. So. 
Before we uh, sign off this episode of Lighten the Pipes, let's just do a brief uh, a brief rundown of the influences that we can quickly spot without digging into our annotations and mm-hmm. our early episodes. Um, what comes to mind? Uh, we'll go tat for tat, okay? So I'll start off. Sherlock Holmes influences or, or the Moonstone influences in Sherlock Holmes. I will start with um, something I've already said, the, the barrel coronet, okay? Barrel coronet? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just because it's a gem, I yeah. would say the adventure of the blue carbuncle. Perfect. Uh, the Sholto treasure in Sign of the Four and the colonial links. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea of like the box and how it was hidden in the shivering mm-hmm. sand, I don't know why, but it kind of reminded me of, what was it called? Damn it. Musgrave it's ritual? The one regarding the Musgrave ritual. Yes, yeah. that kind of reminded me uh, <laughs> I knew where of you that were a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, the Musgrave uh, how ritual. About Thank you. How about the Copper Beaches and I suppose also the um, uh, the Sign of Four with the escape through the roof? Yeah, Sign of Four is very obvious, especially with like the India parallels mm-hmm. and um, allusions to that story. Any other stand out for the, you? Is it the Five Pips? The Five Orange Pips. Yeah, the Five Orange Pips, this like society, you know, that punishes those mm-hmm. who are involved mm-hmm. in the end. Yeah, good one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, even arguably, even arguably, even arguably, uh, arguably the the very first Sherlock Holmes story, a study in Scarlet, too. Mm, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. The idea of the past—I mean, it's a Victorian theme, isn't it? The past coming back. Yes. The past coming back. You see it in the romance. Because they repress the it all the novel. time, and of course, it's going to exactly. rise up. Yeah, it's all about yeah. fucking repression. It's all about repression, and <laughs> yeah, the, the past coming back. Yeah. Anyway, we could play this game all day, but uh, I don't really think we there's do. much it's need fun, to though. do it. Yeah. Uh, right, pal, what is our next title going to be here on Lighting the Pipes? We've talked about some of the ones we've got coming up, the Agatha Christie, Anatomy of a Murder, but we're going to go somewhere a little well, different. Well, not so much huh? different, but we're going to go back to the 1930s and 40s. You know, we were talking about film noir earlier this episode. We're talking about seminal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mystery novels, detective novels. I, I would say there's no argument that we have to take a look at Dashiell Hammett's work. So let's yeah. uh, do what dreams are made of, the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> dreams are made of, yeah. Okay, let's do it. And this will be nice. It'll get us back into that hard-boiled sort of Chandlerian um, environment we haven't been to in a while. This will be cool. And speaking of Hammett, too, I will point out that while I was talking about on the episode, on this episode about, you know, watching noir and that, well, of course, I will be beginning to deposit some noir mm-hmm. reviews over time for Lighting the Pipes. Yep. Uh, another film that I saw, which was part of the Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake triad, was The Glass Key, which is also a Dashiell Hammett novel. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I can also tie in with the that's Maltese fun. Falcon once we release it. Well, I'm looking forward to that first film review that's uh, coming out sure. soon. Let's try to get that one up for our listeners before before we get back to uh, reading with the Dashiell Hammett. That's right. Well, my friend, thank you very much. This has been a great chat. I really enjoyed reading The Moonstone. Thank you for gifting it to me and for bringing me along You're the journey. Welcome. It was high time we did this one, and uh, I'm, I'm pleased you forced my hand because although Betridge's first narrative was a bit of a drag at first, uh, I got through it, and I'm really glad I did. So I will be rereading this book in the future. I, I enjoyed it that much, for sure. Fantastic. Right. Well, everybody, um, stay safe and happy reading. And we'll see you back here on Lighting the Pipes very soon. Hope you enjoyed the show. Take care.